Well, good afternoon, listeners. This is 3CR, 8.55 on the AM dial, and it's the DOGS program, the Australian Council for the Defence of Government Schools. We're here every Saturday at 12 midday to defend and to promote public education. Yes, that's education that's public in purpose and outcome. Above all, it is public in access. Our public schools are and should be open to all children because they are publicly funded. And all schools that are publicly funded should be open to all children. We pay for them. We should be able to use them for our children and grandchildren. A public school should also be public in ownership and control. And above all, public in accountability, if we are living in a democracy. Well, we know that things are not as perfect as they could be. Uh, and they have certainly been deteriorating in the last uh, few decades particularly for public schools. But we have a press release. The, the press release is 865 this week, and it's on our website at www.adogs.info. As well as the press release, which talks about schools doing property deals, uh, we've got some other very in, in, interesting information. Uh, the next employment challenge from coronavirus is how to help the young people. Uh, the people in Canberra realise this. Uh, the young people have been left uh, the big losers in the current situation. And as well as that, the Labor Party are very interested suddenly in childcare. And uh, we have a very interesting AU press release that Dale will bring to us how four-year-olds can make or break an economy. Then we go over to America to have a look at the Supreme Court uh, designate lady uh, and the fact that she's an originalist of a very strange uh, order and what this really means because when the uh, founding fathers of America drew up their constitution, there wasn't any public education at all. And uh, nor was there voting for black people, nor was there voting for women. So what sort of an originalist will this lady be? So without any more ado, let's get on to our press release 865. The wealthy private schools are doing property deals while public schools go begging. In a recent independent report uh, by Adam Morris, an educational economist, we discovered that private schools are overfunded by approximately $1 billion during the period 2020 to 2023, while public schools are going to be underfunded by $19 billion or another figure, $27 billion, if depreciation tax is added, because there's the question of the actual public school infrastructure being depreciated and the state's can deduct that from uh, the the amount of money that they put into state education. It's a pretty vicious idea, actually. We also discover that while schools for the wealthy and powerful are overfunded, neither they or their patrons pay very much tax. On the 20th of October, the ATO revealed that more than $31 billion in lost tax is slipping through the cracks in Australia. Now put that 31 billion back into the 27 billion that the public schools are underfunded. 
if that tax was paid by the wealthy in Australia, then we might be able to fund our public schools properly. Uh, so this $31 billion is lost tax is slipping through the cracks in Australia with the latest tax office snapshot revealing nearly 7% of personal and business obligations are going unpaid. That's really a great deal of money. The new total revealed by the Australian Tax Office on Monday last shows about $423 billion in tax is being paid voluntarily by efforts by the ATO to hit a 96% compliance rate before enforcement remain out of reach for now. So some people voluntarily do pay their tax, but there is a lot that is not being paid. In March, the first ever tax gap analysis for Australia's high wealth taxpayers, made up of 9,000 individuals and 18,000 companies, found that 7.7% of total income tax liabilities went unpaid in the 2016-17 financial year. That would be the Twiggy Forest, who gives money to the causes that he likes, and uh, the other lady, I can't think of her name for the moment, up there in Western Australia, that's a multi-multi-billionaire. And others like them, of course. That meant that deliberate tax avoidance and accounting mistakes by Australia's richest individuals and companies is costing the federal budget $772 million a year. And for ordinary people like you and me, you know, talking about billions and billions, it's like talking about something almost from the moon or Mars. But these people uh, can employ accountants and lawyers to make sure that they don't have to pay their tax. And then on top of that, uh, if they have children, they can spend a little bit of money, a little bit of this money, I suppose, on making sure that their progeny get the very best educational facilities and teaching. So during the full reach of the tax gap research for the first time, the ATO said that the small business, they're the ones that have a very big gap of $11.1 billion, ahead of individuals at $8.3 billion. And these are based on the 2017-18 figures. So imagine what the 2019-20 figures are to be. And so that is a snapshot of what is happening in the financial field. Yes, but to add insult to injury, with the wealthy not paying their tax and getting special privileges for their children in wealthy schools, we also discover in the last week how much money these educational businesses have to throw around in the poverty market. And there's been a very interesting development, which Oliver will tell you all about. Thank you, Jamie. On October 21st, 2020, Simon Johansson and Madeline Hefferman from The Age tell us that Xavier, one of Victoria's oldest schools, has said it will close the 83-year-old Costa Cajol on the corner of New Street and South Road at the end of next year due to falling enrolments. As a result, the the Jesuit Catholic Order, the property's owner, is moving to sell the uh, 32,800 square metre school site. And who is in the market? Australia's biggest school, Haleybury, is vying with property developers to get control of of Xavier College's Brighton campus which is expected to fetch between $100 million and $130 million. 
Haley Berry is understood to be eyeing the campus, although property industry sources suggest that it, it has bulked at the 100 million plus asking price. A loose land value for the area is between 3,000 and 4,000 per square meter. Haleyberry builds itself as one of the most entrepreneurial and enterprising schools in Australia. It has four campuses across Melbourne, Brighton, Berwick, Keithborough and the CBD, plus schools in Darwin and China. It also has a history of acquisitive uh, property deals. In 2019, it it bought two residential properties in Brighton to support its crowded Brighton campus. About one kilometre east of Costco Hall, which has 11,000, 1,100 students, rather. About four years before that, it paid 52.5 million for an eight-story building at 383 King Street, where it established Melbourne's first vertical school. Haleyberry's latest financial accounts show it has a strong balance sheet, raking in 100 million in tuition fees and 44 million in government grants in the 2018 calendar year. The school's property plant and equipment was valued valued at $233 million. Uh, The religious property developers tax-free. The Xavier campus has never paid rates or land tax or any other federal taxes. The Jesuits who will pocket more than $100 million will not pay capital gains tax. If Haleyberry buys the property, they will not pay any stamp duty, land tax or council rates. And as they rake in the fees and public grants, making mouth-watering profits, they will not pay any federal taxes like income tax, GST, or fringe benefits tax either. So public school parents who pay their taxes, usually because they are not wealthy and cannot afford tax accountants, are subsidizing a growing religious education property industry with both direct and indirect billions of dollars while their schools go begging. Their reaction was not unsurprising. Yes, well, we'll have a bit of a break and we'll come back And we'll see what some of the reactions were uh, in the age, the comment section. Uh, Dale and Oliver will give you some information on that. Do you need to renew your subscription? Make a donation. Or pass on some information to a programmer. We can't get to the phone all the time right now, but we're still here. You can call us on 03... 94198377 94198377 Each weekday between 1 and 5pm and talk to a staff member. That's 03-9419-8377 3CR Community Radio, here to stay. Local issues. So I'm here at the school, kids strike for climate action. Live coverage. Join the, the spirit of this gathering here today at IMAP. Your voices. So give us a bit of a lowdown about what's happening. There's about 200, 200 people here at the moment. Community struggles. We're now in front of the uh, Tundaminawaya Mallboyina Monument. I'd like to thank Community Radio 3CR, who for the last decade has been broadcasting here. Feed Radical Radio, your membership is vital. A few hundred people about to pass us right now. Lots of young people standing up for their future. Subscribe today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 8377. 
welcome back to the Dogs Program here on 3CR, 8.55 on the AM dial. We've been talking about uh, Haleyberry and Xavier, big property developers that uh, pay no tax because they are a charity. They're worth billions, they're worth millions, and the, uh, the taxpayer gives them millions and millions too every year, but uh, they are into the property business. So we'll now go, go to look at some of the reactions. There was a gentleman who wrote in and started things going on the age in his comments. His name was Pablo. Over to you, uh, Oliver. Thank you, Jean. Pablo says, time for another debate on how much taxpayer money is going to in to subsidise a private concern. And then TH adds, the debate has been going on for as long as I can remember. What is needed is a government with the political courage to step and say enough is enough. And then Pablo chimes in again saying, true enough, but why I framed it that way is because every time it surfaces, it dies. I'm old enough to remember dogs, so it is high time this group was reimagined. Woot woot, shout out to the dogs. Uh, Stockholm Syndrome says, imagine a world with no private schools and all these young men and women in the local government school system. And then Sally says, imagine also a world with no private schools and all these teachers in the local government school system. MJE says, and Haleyberry was the school that stood down all their music teachers back in April. Obviously, that was not necessary. On the other hand, David G says, got that right, Pablo. Yeah, he goes on to say, good to know, while local secondary colleges struggle to make ends meet, and repair their buildings, rich private schools are able to spend millions on facilities, camps and extras. This, of course, all funded with the millions they receive annually via the taxpayer, in addition to their very high fees. doesn't happen anywhere else in the Western world. Uh, and then Seabrook says, the word, the word was out months ago that Haley Berry was the buyer. They probably approached Xavier with the offer as the sale plans came out of the blue. Tax-free income anyways. JV says, good to see our tax dollars are being put to good use. Also, I drove past my old public primary school the other day. I'm pretty sure they're the same portables I was in over 30 years ago. That's heritage for you. And Retta says, Haleyberry had better move quickly, as I know the local government school has a cool $100 million just waiting to be spent on something. Fishy says, really, this could be sold for development, not as a school? I wonder what planning would say about that. And then Kerry Moore says, what about capital gains tax foregone because the school, which is commercially run, is a religious institution. No tax paid on that sale means the rest of the country has greater tax obligations to make up the gap. And then Tuppy says it all with, ah, the business of education. And then Bazajay says, it's interesting Xavier appears to be contracting while Haleyberry is expanding. Perhaps it's because Haleyberry, while having links to the Presbyterian Church in its origins, has offered a more secular brand of education. In the late 50s, quite a few pupils had Jewish parents. Pluto asks, this school gets government grants? And yes, yes, Pluto, it does, as does every private school. And Chester says, all Australian children receive some form of monetary grant for their education. In the case of private schools, the amount they receive is on a per-student basis less than the amount a public school student receives. 
that actually is wrong. <laughs> yeah, that's not true. Uh, this guy's coming up now. This is very interesting. It's the old, old um, chestnut. We pay taxes, so we should be allowed to, um, to send our children to private schools and get our taxes back for that. But even if that was true, uh, it, that shouldn't be because we pay taxes for the common good, not the private good. But it's now reached the stage that private schools are getting more per student in some cases than uh, the public schools. So if we closed them down and took them over, we'd save an awful lot of money. Uh, sorry to uh, cut across that. No, that's it's important that we um, make that point, Jean, because, as you say, that is the old chestnut, you know, and it's just patently untrue. But Basa Jay has a very interesting uh, letter uh, because he knows some of the some of the uh, history of this place. So over to Oliver. Uh, Bazajay says that Haleybury's beginnings at the South Road property in Brighton were quite humble. It started to expand when D. M. Bradshaw was the headmaster, acquiring property at Keysborough, which was farmland. Since then, it has grown into an education behemoth. I can remember at the time there was some controversy within the school council and Presbyterian Church about the wisdom of buying the land. It was Bradshaw that pushed it through, from what I heard. Yes, that's some of the history of the Presbyterian Church, was in, which was interesting. But in 1971, when there was the Uniting Church formed, it went into the Uniting Church bundle. And uh, I find it extraordinary that when one of their business operations up at Nanda went, um, went broke, uh, the, the Uniting Church sold um, so many little churches and it was it was at the stage where uh, centuries old um, furniture that had been given by people and people's heritage was sold at auctions uh, very quietly because they didn't want any trouble from their congregations. But here you have this multi multi million dollar enterprise that didn't come to the party and help out uh, in the schooling operation back it was about three or four years ago. So. Um, the whole religious Christian thing here really is um, one one really has to wonder about it. There's a great deal of mendacity, I think, involved. That's that's my two pennies worth from from the history of the uh, uniting of Presbyterian churches. Okay, we'll have a little break now, and then we'll be back with more. Yes. You can see that this country is covered in the blood of Aboriginal people, and length and breadth of it. Australia is a part of an undeclared war and a secret invasion. And it began 250 years ago this year. Now, we have a country that's built on lies, deceit, fraud, propaganda and race hatred indoctrination. Now, it's been 250 years of us being oppressed in our own land, brutally. We might be oppressed, but we understand what freedom is. And we fight for it every day and we resisted this occupation since day one. And I predict colonialism... Capitalism, imperialism is going to get knocked out cold by about mid this year. 3CR, your station in struggle and solidarity. To donate, go to 3cr.org.au.
Victor Legal Service has launched a free information and advice phone service for people who have been stopped, questioned, fined or charged for breaching the new COVID-19 restrictions. Have you been fined or charged under the new laws or stopped and questioned by police for being outside? Call 0434 136 501. Weekdays between 9am and 5pm. That's 0434 136 501. Or head to fitzroy-legal.org.au for more information. You can also report incidents at covidpolicing.org.au. Fitzroy Legal Service is a 3CR supporter. Yes, well, here we are in the DOS program uh, on 3CR, 855 on the AM dial. And uh, we've been talking about Harley Berry and Xavier as big property developers that have got millions, hundreds of millions to throw around while our local state schools go begging to both the federal and the state governments and their parents, of course, who um, are in in lockdown still here in Melbourne. But... Um, We've got uh, a very interesting article, The Next Employment Challenge from Coronavirus, How to Help the Young, because it is the young people, uh, like Oliver here, who are going to be the losers in this uh, current time of plague. Over to you, Oliver. Thank you, Jenny. Even before COVID-19, young Australians were doing it hard in the labour market. Slower economic growth and the increasing employment of older Australians since the global financial crisis has been crowding them out, had been crowding them out. In recent research, Michael Coeli and I estimate that crowding out reduced the proportion of young Australians that aged 15 to 24 years in employment by four to five percentage points since the global financial crisis. As a result, more young people have become long-term unemployed or have had to gain full-time work through part-time work, and many of those who have found work have needed to spend extra time and resources doing things such as unpaid internships to get it. Now, young Australians are going to be the hardest hit by the COVID-19 recession. Partly, this is because the young are always hardest hit during economic downturns, needing to make the transition from education to work at a time when there are few new jobs on offer. Young Australians are still reeling from the GFC. Look at what happened after the global financial crisis. The chart below uses data from the Household, Income and Labour Dynamics in Australia survey to show changes in employment to population ratios over time compared to 2008, which was the start of the global financial crisis. The proportion of the population aged 25 to 54 years in employment fell for several years before bouncing back. But the decline in the proportion of young who were employed was much larger almost double the size and took longer to reverse. Young Australians went into the global financial crisis doing increasingly better than older Australians and came out of it doing increasingly worse. COVID-19 should be worse. This crisis brings with it extra reasons to believe young people will be hard hit. First, a sizable group of older workers are likely to delay retirement to rebuild their superannuation balances. This will make it even harder for young job seekers to find jobs. Second, the young, the young account for a disproportionate share of workers in industries being most affected by COVID-19 shutdowns, 
such as hospitality and retail trade. Third, the young are also a large proportion of casual employees who have been in their jobs for less than 12 months. That means they will not be eligible for the JobKeeper payment, making them more likely to be laid off and less likely to be rehired than workers who are. Worryingly, the disadvantaged young are likely to be the hardest hit of all. To see this, we can again draw on experience from the financial crisis. The chart below presents the same information on changes in the employment population ratio as the chart above, this time for groups within the 20 to 24 age group. Those with bachelor degrees were largely unaffected. Those who were in full-time study at the the time suffered a drop in employment but recovered after a decade. But those not in full-time study did not have a bachelor's degree saw a massive massive fall in their likelihood of employment at the age points, which has only been partly reversed. Why should we worry about the impact on the young? We should worry about the impact on the young because it matters for equity today, but also for the long-term consequences. We know that what happens to people at the start of their time in the labour market will affect what happens to them in the rest of their working lives. Many, (coughs) Many international studies have shown that trying to move into employment during a major economic downturn cuts the probability of employment and future earnings for a decade or more. Why this occurs is less well established. Reasons suggest include being forced to take lower quality jobs, losing skills and losing psychological well-being. The best way to improve the outlook for young Australians is to get back to higher rates of job creation as quickly as possible. It is what the government is trying to achieve by keeping jobs open through JobKeeper and other initiatives. In the meantime, there is a pressing case for programs targeted at the young to improve their prospects of employment when the economy recovers. Priority should be given to the low-skilled and long-term unemployed. Recommendations made by the Employment service, Services Expert Advisory Panel on employment services to assist jobs in areas of employment would be a case of start. Groups are in danger. Something also needs to be done for any young people who will grow over the next 12 months. And then having a spell of unemployment, they should, could be encouraged to undertake further study with a holiday from higher education loans scheme loans and free TAFE courses for 2021. Allowing young people to build and maintain contact with the labour market through scaled up and government funded paid internship programs will be a further valuable step although its implementation would need to be timed to match the economic recovery. To prevent young people having a spell of unemployment, they could be encouraged to undertake further study with three TAFE courses for 2021. We should worry about the impact on the young because it matters for equity today, but also for the long-term consequences. Young Australians are going to be hardest hit by the COVID-19 recession. By Jeff Bourne, Professor of Economics, University of Melbourne. Thank you for that. That's a very interesting article, uh, saying what most of us, of course, would take for granted, that uh, in times of crisis, it is the young who suffer. And um, 100 years ago, I suppose, we had all the trouble. They started a war, didn't they? And then they got themselves into a depression. And there was good time from the 1950s to the 1970s and 80s that something happened around about 1980. There was a paradigm shift uh, in the economic ideology. And we are now in a, in a place which um, Thomas Piketty calls hyper 
capitalism, not just capitalism, which up to a point is a mixture of public and private, but hyper. And our government uh, half knows that they have to do something, and so they did something. They went Keynesian, they went back uh, to the Keynesian model, back to the old paradigm, and they gave us JobKeeper and they spent money. But now they are going back and saying, oh, the private sector can do it all. The private sector doesn't do it all. The private sector makes profits. It's the private and the public sector that does it. So um, it's very interesting times that we live in. But those of us who believe in public first uh, and the idea that the, uh, there is a common good have got to fight for the young. And most of all, here we are with the DOGS program fighting for the education of the young. Because as you can see from that article, a child that doesn't even go to university is in real trouble when it comes to the job market. Where are they going to get the experience and the know-how? And where is the money that should be going into their tertiary education, into the public tape? It's going into the private tapes that have rorted the system up to $19 billion and um, left our children uneducated and without jobs. But that's enough for me for the moment. We'll have a break and we'll come back. And um, Dale has got a very interesting article about how four-year-olds can make or break an economy. Isolated? Quarantined? Need some essentials but can't leave the house? Or just having a hard time dealing with everything at the moment? Queer Aid NAM is a new mutual aid group of organised volunteers. We're here, we're queer, and we've got your back. Whether or not that's how you identify, nobody should be suffering because capitalism or the state didn't provide what they needed. That's why we're working to strengthen our communities through solidarity. Put in a request for help and we'll match you with a volunteer in your area who can either pick up groceries or other essentials for you, help you run errands, cook meals for you, or check in with how you're going. If you or someone you know is having a hard time, or if you want to join the volunteer list, find us on QueerAidMelbourne.org or search for us via Facebook, COVID-19 Queer Aid Nam Melbourne. So tell your family and your friends, and don't forget your neighbours. That's QueerAidMelbourne.org, a 3CR supporter. really am not understanding why people aren't seeing the fact that prisons are an integral part of a public health response to a pandemic. Like you, I'm really concerned about whether the data is being released very honestly about illnesses within prison. I have suspicions it's not, but really we need very strong leadership in this country that actually cares about people inside, our most vulnerable populations inside. That's what we need and that's not what we're getting right now. 3CR, your station in struggle and solidarity. To donate, go to 3cr.org.au. Well, welcome back to the Dogs Program. And if you want to find out more about the dogs, the defence of government schools, 
We've been around for quite a while, and you can go to our website at www.adogs.info. And you can have a look through our press releases and uh, our, the other material on the on the website uh, and uh, find out more about us and where we're coming from. We have been around, and the website has been there since 1998. But now we're going to talk about child care. Uh, it is part of education. Where What happens to a child even before they come into uh, our public schools is very, very important. And uh, the Labor Party have suddenly woken up that Australia is way, way behind the rest of the world. And if we want to get our mothers back into the workforce, then something has to be done about child care. And here we have Mr Albanese, believe it or not, saying childcare is a right. Think of that. Children have rights. The dogs believe that children have rights. They have a right to an education paid by our taxes. And that's why we're here to defend our public system. But Dale's going to tell you how four-year-olds could make or break an economy. Over to you, Dale. Thanks, Jean. Yeah, I'll just uh, repeat the website. That's www.adogs.info. That's www.adogs.info. Okay, now I have an AU uh, press release saying asking the question, how four-year-olds can make or break an economy. If the question is how best to lift our ailing economy out of a sickly slum, the answer could be early childhood education. Investing in the early years of a child's life through free preschool for three- and four-year-olds doesn't just make a difference to educational outcomes. It offers a return on investment that is virtually unequaled in a depressed society depressed economy. Independent analysis by PricewaterhouseCoopers, PwC, last year identified approximately $2 of benefits for every $1 spent on early childhood education. The report, A Smart Investment for a Smarter Australia, concluded that spending on early childhood education could be viewed as a strong long-term investment with quantifiable financial returns. It found that governments continue to win the long term, win in the long term by providing early childhood education. They benefit from higher tax paid by parents and carers who are able to work more and children who earn more over their lifetimes, the report says. Early childhood education also reduces unemployment and the resulting payments of unemployment benefits and other forms of social expenditure. State and territory and territory governments are beneficiaries as well as uh, as are beneficiaries as a result of fewer children repeating a year of school or needing special education placements as well as lower health and criminal justice system costs the benefit of spending on education are incredible and multi-dimensional says jim stanford director of the center for future work at the australia institute to start with, there's an immediate economic boost by employing more people. The Australian system is ridiculous compared to the rest of the industrialised world. Full-day education for three- and four-year-olds at the public expense is how it should be. That would create 100,000 or more jobs in the early childhood education system, says Stanford. That would help get the ball rolling to repair our labour market after the pandemic. 
And given that most, most early childhood educators are female, it would increase the number of women in work and allow some of the parents of children in early childhood education to work or work more hours, he adds. Australian women, particularly in the prime parenting years, have labour force participation far below other industrial countries. It is precisely because we don't have an adequate early childhood education system, says Stanford. The job losses for women in this recession have been significantly worse than for men because of the sectors they tend to work in. Those were the sectors that were shut down. Behind the game. Extensive research, which is widely accepted worldwide, has proven that a child's early years are critical to their development, says Professor Deborah Brennan from the University of New South Wales. Brennan, a co-author of a 2018 report on the most effective interventions in early childhood, says parents get it, but policymakers are behind the game. It's not so much about children having very specific skills when they enter school. We're really talking about sociability, familiarity with working alongside other children, listening to and respecting other opinions, cooperating and really finding joy in learning. Brennan says countries comparable to Australia introduced two years of early education years ago and often free of charge. I want to acknowledge that some of the states, notably Victoria, are really moving ahead with preschool for three-year-olds. Other states, like New South Wales and the ACT, have made some steps, but Victoria is the standout, Brennan says. A disrupted sector. More than 96% of Australian children attend an early childhood education program in the year before school. 15 hours per week delivered by a qualified teacher is provided to four-year-olds in a funding arrangement between the federal and state and territory governments known as the Universal Access National Partnership. But the federal funding that has underpinned the partnership since 2013 has always been uncertain. A series of 12-month or two-year temporary funding agreements has led to a damaging disruption in the sector. Educators and early childhood centres have been left unable to make long-term plans, says Martel Menz, the AEU's federal executive early childhood representative. It's not the secure and permanent funding we need, she says. A review commissioned by the Council of Australian Governments, COAG, Education Council agrees, noting that short-term agreements and performance-based payments had compromised the ability to plan and invest for the long term and had had a debilitating effect on the sector. This means, for example, the good staff cannot be retained due to an inability to promise them longer-term employment, which in turn leads to higher turnover and associated administrative inefficiencies, says Mentz. To remedy that, a review by international management consultancy, the NAUS Group, has recommended that the next agreement run for five years, from 2021 to 2025, followed by a permanent national agreement from 2026. Federal funding should continue, the review recommends, because of the strong evidence that quality preschool improves educational and other developmental outcomes. A decrease in funding would reduce preschool participation and could adversely affect workforce participation. 
there would be serious consequences for children, parents, the sector and its workforce and other government programs, says Mentz. In an ideal world, all children would receive at least two years of free preschool education delivered by a qualified early childhood educator, she said. While it shouldn't necessarily be compulsory, it should be written into legislation that every child has the right. Early advantage. The economic benefits of early childhood education are as follows. Uh, One is to two. Two dollars return for every one dollar spent on early childhood education. The next point. $4.8 billion benefits generated by each cohort attending early childhood education. Point three, Australia invests $2.3 billion on universal access to early childhood education. Point four, this equates to a government spend of $6,789 per child per year, less than half of what it spends on primary school children and a third of what it spends on secondary school children. And the sources for that are a smart investment for a smarter Australian by the PwC. They're very interesting figures, aren't they? Very interesting figures. Uh, that you know, this, this is a um, this is a good investment. Unfortunately, uh, people like Haleybury and all the organisations like Haleybury are interested in property investment, but the very very best investment is in our children, in our people. Uh, and uh, unfortunately, a lot of our governments really don't understand this. The way forward for a nation is the next generation and to make sure that our children are ready to learn to read and write when they actually enter school means good preschool, particularly for the disadvantaged. For three years, teachers have had their qualifications, their pay, their pensions and their working conditions attacked relentlessly by this government. I'm a proud product of a government-funded primary school education and of a government-funded secondary school education. Australia is one of the richest and luckiest countries in the world and there's no reason whatsoever why we can't have the very best public schools in the world. It's still not good enough that kids with disability miss out. You're listening to The Dogs, the defence of government schools on 3CR. Well, welcome back to The Dogs Programme, the Australian Council for the Defence of Government Schools. Uh, We're here, even in times of plague, to uh, defend the rights of our children to a public education that is free, secular and universal. But um, over in America, well, it seems as if Australia is more interested in in the American elections than uh, they are sometimes in their own. Uh, But uh, they say, too, that uh, America sneezes and everybody else gets a cold. But um, there are movements there to put a very strange lady on the Supreme Court and this will really affect the future of public education there and public education in Australia for that same reason. Uh, this lady that 
they're talking about putting on the uh, Supreme Court is what you call an originalist judge. Uh, and uh, Oliver, who is a law student, uh, has some interest in this, since he'll be eventually doing constitutional law, I suppose. But um, there's a gentleman called Jan Ressinger who has put a comment on this originalist uh, potential Supreme Court judge uh, on the Diane Ravitch blog. So here is Oliver to tell you about the possibility of an originalist judge and what it means for public education. Thank you, Jean. Jan Resiger writes here about the misfit between an originalist interpretation of the Constitution and the field of education, which has evolved very far from its condition in the 1770s. It is likely that an originalist, such as Judge Amy Coney Barrett claimed to be, would have nothing to say about contemporary issues in education, since there were no public schools, no Catholic schools, no organised system of education at all in the time that the Constitution was written. Resiger writes, For a couple of weeks now, since the publication of Derek Black's History of the Constitutional Basis for American Public Education, this blog has been reflecting on the meaning of constitutional principles in our nation's founding documents and the 50-state constitution for defining the role and meaning of our nation's system of public schools. But this week, Judge Amy Coney Barrett, who defines herself as a constitutional originalist, went through hours of Senate confirmation hearings leading to a Senate vote on her confirmation in the next week or two as President Trump's latest appointment to the U.S. Supreme Court. All week we have been considering what it means for our society today when members of the U.S. Supreme Court define themselves as originalists who are bound to interpret the constitutionality of today's laws according to the precise wording of the U.S. Constitution of 1787. The other day, when Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot, trained in law and formerly a federal prosecutor, was asked whether she is an originalist, Mayor Lightfoot, uh, Lightfoot replied, You ask a gay black woman if she is an originalist. No, ma'am, I am not. The Constitution didn't consider me a person because I am a woman, because I'm black, because I'm gay. I am not, in t- uh, I am, I'm not an originalist. I believe in the Constitution. I believe that it is a document that the founders intended to evolve, and what they did was set the framework for how our country was going to be different from any other. But originalists say that, let's go back to 1776, and whatever was there in the original language, that's it. That language excluded now over 50% of the country. So no, I am not an originalist. Like Mayor Lightfoot, many people today worry about originalist legal interpretation. In Linguistics 101, students learn that language changes and evolves over time as particular words become archaic, fall out of common usage, or evolve to mean something different. Dictionaries are descriptive, not prescriptive. We cannot know precisely what the founders intended, but we can be sure that the words they used in 1787 may connote something much broader or narrower today. Schoolhouse burning. Uh, Schoolhouse burning. Derek Black's new book is, in essence, the history of how the meaning of the guarantee of public education as a right for every child has changed and become more inclusive in the over 200 years since our our nation's founding. Some people say that because the Constitution itself does not mention public education, 
public education is not a fundamental right. But Black disagrees because public education is so carefully planned in the Northwest Ordinance, passed as a sort of companion document in the same year as the Constitution. As Black traces the history of our understanding of the right to public education, it's clear that Derek Black is certainly not an originalist. His book is the story of how our history, the Civil War, the development of the constitutional principles of the 50 states, Jim Crow, the Civil Rights Movement, has informed and further defined the meaning of the founding principles. The foregoing principles, the right to an adequate and equal education, making education the state's absolute and foremost duty, require, re- requiring states to exert the necessary effort, financial or otherwise, to provide quality educational access, placing education above normal politics, and expecting courts to serve as a check, are all in the service of something larger. The original idea that education is the foundation of our constitutional democracy. Education is the means by which citizens preserve their other rights. Education gives citizens the tools they need to hold their political leaders accountable. Democracy does not work well without educated citizens. Black reminds us, however, the the founders articulated educational goals not with any certainty that they would spring into reality simply by writing them down, but in the hope that we might one day live into them. Originalist legal interpretation doesn't pay much heed to how we have lived into the goals and principles declared all those generations ago. How has the meaning of the constitutional protection of equal education evolved over the history of our country? Back to you, Jane. Yes, it's a very interesting uh, point of view, uh, particularly from the uh, point of view of America. That is the American point of view of how dangerous they think this Amy Comey Barrett will be on the Supreme Court for public education. I mean, how can you even talk about public or private education when back in 1787 uh, there was no such thing. But um, since then, of course, the idea that it is the right of every child to a free, secular and universal education uh, has been a cornerstone, not only of the American, but of the Australian democracy. But we wonder whether or not we are still living in a democracy when, first of all, we look at, at America, which perhaps is a republic, but not a democracy, and we look at Australia, which is becoming more and more oligarchic or plutocratic. It seems more and more that with lobbyists, uh, it is the wealthy and the uh, powerful who are getting the most out of our country, not our children. So um, that's enough for us today. Uh, we have a little bit of time, perhaps, to talk about our great state school. <laughs> Every week on the Doctor Program, we have a special segment to show a different state school is a great school. State schools are great. Schools. School of the week. State school. School of the week. Great state schools. State schools. School of the week. School for the week here on the Dogs Program. And I want to talk about University High and uh, compare it with Haileybury. Now, University High uh, is very close to the uh, CBD campus of Haileybury, but um, it has uh, quite a lot of children. Uh, It has well over 1,000 children, 1,500 children, 
but its actual um, exir is quite high too. It's well above 1,000, 1,050. But, um, and it has quite a few, 66% of children from the upper area of um, socioeconomic advantage. 66%. But it has also quite a few children from the lower group. So uh, it is not what you would call a poor school, but it doesn't take that much to educate a child really. Uh, it gets from the Australian government 3.26 million every year. It gets from the state government 14.1 million every year. And the fees there are reasonably high. It's not a free education, except, of course, for those who can't afford to pay. So uh, because it has 1,500 children, it actually has got 1.4 million in private fees. And it has, because it has some wealthy parents there, it also receives about a million every year in private donations. So this is quite a well-to-do um, state school, believe it or not. It is in a fairly reasonably good area, but it does take children from the lower um, socioeconomic groups and quite a few of them, quite a few. 66% from the top group, but uh, quite a few from the lower groups. And how much does it cost to educate a child there? A little bit less than um, the standard, $13,837 per student per year. So they're really doing quite a good job. And what are the results there? The results there for NAPLAN are actually quite good, excepting at year seven, for the children coming in from the primary school, by the way, it's not so good for writing and spelling. Very interesting. The NAPLAN results are a little bit down, not not far down, but a little bit down for writing and spelling, but by year nine, they are well up. And all of the results are um, are pretty good. So our time has run out, uh, and uh, that's enough for today. But since my children and grandchildren have gone to University High, I thought that it was just a wonderful school because they did mix with children from all backgrounds in their area, and it was our local school too. And the music was tremendous. So, uh, and they all, I think, had very happy memories of their time there. But that is enough for the moment, um, and we hope that we'll be back. We know we'll be back next week at the same time to promote and defend public education in Australia. Just as I 
him standing by my bed. They framed you on a murder charge, says Joe, but I'm dead, says Joe, but I'm dead. The copper bosses killed you, Joe, they shot you, Joe, says I. Takes more than guns to kill a man, says Joe, I didn't die, says Joe, I didn't die. And standing there as big as life, and smiling with his eyes, says Joe, what they can never kill, went on. To organize, went on to organize. From San Diego up to Maine, in every mine and mill, where workers strike and organize, it's there you find your hill. It's there you find. listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.